Greetings fellow time travellers, great to have you with me as we journey through history and through time together. Uh, before we get started on today's episode, it's the traditional thank you for all the people who have already signed up to support the Patreon.com site. It's the financial support of the Patreon.com site that enables Paul and I to do everything else in terms of the love letters and, and all of it's made possible by Patreon. So if you're already a, a paying member of that community, a thousand thank yous. If you're not a member yet and you'd like to join to keep this family together, go to patreon.com, find me by name, sign up, partner some cash, become a member. Uh, there's exclusive vodcasts, there's question and answer sessions that you can take part in, competitions. Anyway, it brings you into a community, like-minded, curious questioning types who are all interconnected. So anyway, enough of the advert, it's time to strap yourselves into the time machine as we set off on the next step in my love letter to the world. Recorder, microphone... Action. A formidable invasion force lands on Britain's coast and sweeps across the country, brutally crushing anyone who stands in their way. The Vikings' great heathen army is here and they mean business. With Anglo-Saxon kingdoms toppling like tenpins, a resilient, resolute leader is born. After being battered and bruised, this leader hones his warrior skills with sustained guerrilla warfare before meeting the Viking marauders head-on. The fight back has begun. Endeavouring to understand history in hopes of illuminating the future, I'm Neil Oliver and this is my love letter to the world. Hi Neil. In the last episode, we travelled to the middle of the 9th century as the vast European empire was splintering into shards. Where are we this week? Afternoon, Paul. We're still in the 9th century, uh, but we've crossed the Channel and we're now in the Long Island of Britain. We're here to witness the laying of the first foundation stones of what would become England. Uh, the Vikings' mickle heathen hair is proving to be unstoppable. That's the great heathen army. Poised to conquer the whole island, but just when all seems lost, a charismatic leader and his determined army step forward. We're in England today, specifically that part of the south and west which was once known, and to some people to some extent still is known, as Wessex. I always remember when I was an archaeology student at Glasgow University, uh, there were two field trips within the course. One of them was the Wessex field trip, and all of us in, in that year, third year, would bundle aboard a single-decker bus and we were driven down from Glasgow to see places like Stonehenge and Silbury Hill and you know, and all these places. It was still known then by the, the ancient name of Wessex. So we're in, we're in Wessex, and... It's worth it's worth noting actually because up until this point in this love letter to the world, we're sort of three thousand years in. <laughs> this is a five thousand year story, and we started about uh, you know back with, in Heduana four and a half thousand years ago, more more like five thousand years ago. It's taken all this time before we really start hearing anything from our part of the world. Because the fact is, our part of the world didn't have any impact on the big story for all of that time. 
from the beginning, you know, if you track recorded history, the written word or whatever, but even if you go further back, the action's coming from other places in our direction. And certainly within this love letter to the world, it's all stuff coming out of what we would call the East with our perspective on the planet. And, and it comes into the West and eventually some of it reaches us. Our part of the world operated like a kind of reluctant sponge. We were, we were just receiving movements of people and with them ideas, always out of the East and coming in our direction. And we were pushing absolutely nothing back. We had no, we had no offer to make. It's interesting, isn't it, that because we've grown up being told that we were the centre of the world for so long, to realise that we weren't. Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, ultimately, in the story of the world, our part of the world, even even this small archipelago, ends up casting arguably the biggest shadow of all. It's just, it takes a very long time to get up and running. You know, we're very slow out of the traps. Um, I mean, really, by this point, for people that have been paying attention to this love letter to the world, it, the only mentions really so far have been uh, the Emperor, the Roman Emperor Constantine, who was proclaimed at York by the Roman army, and, and went, or that part of the Roman army that was with him, uh, and he went on to be the, you know, the Roman Emperor. The Vikings arriving, making their first impression, leaving their first bloody fingerprints, if you like. Their first crime scene was Lindisfarne, off the northeast of England. And really, that's effectively been it. It's all been one-way traffic. Farming technology comes to us out of the east. Metalworking comes to us out of the east. Either they come in their entirety or they bolster. There's, there's always some arguments for some of the some of that knowledge having been come by, you know, indigenously, domestically. But in any event, it was still bolstered and, and sped up by by other arrivals from from elsewhere. So all of that, all of that history had happened, but there's a change. There is a change in the air by now. At this point, you know, by, by 800 AD, uh, Charlemagne was Holy Roman Emperor. He was consciously, consciously recreating the glory that had been Rome. He didn't have a living memory of it. Obviously, it was gone centuries before his time. But there was an awareness of it. There was a memory, a folk memory of what had been Rome. He was himself the grandson of Charles Martel, who we've already met, who turned back the Muslim advance at Tours in 732 AD. So there's, there's a kindling, there's a sparking into existence in Western Europe of something new, something that, that's going to matter. Thanks to Charles Martel, Europe was and, and would remain Christian. They would be backsliding towards paganism constantly. Some would say always, but there was no there was no serious challenge to the great religion of Christianity in Europe after Martel's efforts. And then you know we've already name checked the Vikings. You know they first arrived in Lindisfarne in the eighth century, but they matter. They matter in this context, in in terms of this of the of the love letter today's love letter, because for about half a century after they burst onto the scene, they were just smash and grab raiders. You know, they came in, struck fast, grabbed what they wanted, gold, people, whatever things of value, things they wanted, and then they left. 
I mean, they may have overwintered in certain locations from time to time, but they weren't they weren't seriously trying to colonise. All of that changed in 865 AD. That was the the arrival, as was noted by the chroniclers here in Britain, of the Mickle Heathen Hare, the great heathen army. Thousands of Vikings, of Scandinavians, in a coordinated effort, all arrived at once and they came determined to conquer, to grab as much, if not all, of the whole damned island. They came to stay, they came to get the place. The Britain that they arrived into was well, the old Britannia. After the Romans departed in the 5th century, having found more pressing concerns nearer home, back in Italy, if you like, or back on mainland Europe at least, that left a power vacuum in, into which had been pulled Angles and Saxons from northern Europe. And they had come in into that space. They had tussled with the indigenous Romano-British population and had established, by the time of the, the Great Heathen Army, let's say, it's difficult to be precise, but perhaps four kingdoms, four semi-independent Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. And they were Mercia in the west, in the northwest, Northumbria in the northeast of England, East Anglia, further south but also in the east, and Wessex over in the southwest. That's a useful and reasonable picture to have in your head of what was here until the Vikings arrived and they arrived like the worst weather imaginable and they swept swiftly across the country into the country they knocked over the other Anglo-Saxon kingdoms all those thousands operating in concert they knocked out and took control of everywhere but in, in England you know, they weren't they weren't really seeking to do much of the same colonization in Scotland. Did they go to Wales as well? They were they would have they were absolutely they would have been there, but their their impact is not recorded in as as having had the same impact. It's 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 useful, it's reasonable to imagine it as a as an English experience. But also to remember at that point that there wasn't really an England. That's really the point of this story. That's really the point of this, this love letter, this specific love letter. So there's one kingdom left standing, and it's Wessex down in the southwest. At the time of the arrival of that great Viking, that great heathen army, obviously it was just our Christian chroniclers that called them heathens. That's not how they saw themselves. Uh, but the Christian chroniclers on the island described them as, as uh, filthy heathens. Worshipping all sorts of terrible gods, Zeus and Thor and the rest of them. At the time, Wessex was led by the king, Ethelred. That's a familiar name for anybody that knows anything about Anglo-Saxons. That's a name that comes up, you know, more than once. He was killed in battle by Vikings in 871. And that left his younger brother as the only available heir. And his name was Alfred. He was not great yet, but he was destined for greatness. A biography was written of him by a Welshman called Asser. He wrote the life of King Alfred. And according to Asser, Alfred was a, a thoughtful man. 
he was a capable tactician and war leader when he had to be, but he was also he was given to other things, uh, like Charlemagne, like a like a much lesser Charlemagne. He was very interested in and valued learning, education. He was a learned individual. Literacy was important to him, very important to him. Aged four, he had been sent. This is amazing to me. He, at four, he was sent by his father to Rome to be blessed by the Pope. I, I think that's extraordinary to think of someone being sent from... I don't know why I do, but it just I, I find that amazing. It reminds me again, and as I always need to be reminded of the, of the connectedness of the world at that time. You know, I just find it amazing to think that a little four-year-old boy would be sent from the southwest of England to be blessed by the Pope in Rome. But, but there you go. He was the youngest of four sons. And if life had worked out differently for him and the rest of his siblings, he would probably have been expected to go into to take holy orders. He, he might have been expected to, you know, become a churchman, a figure within the religious sphere. But one by one, all of his brothers died before him including Athelred, which meant that Alfred became king. Now, he wasn't ready for it, as is often the case. You know, he hadn't been raised to the kingship. He hadn't been, he hadn't been trained, but nonetheless, he had it thrust upon him. And he almost lost the whole thing. And it was a sliding doors moment. The whole future of, of the Long Island of Britain could have been very different. The great heathen army almost got control of the whole place. His low point, his worst day, was in January 878 when a Viking warrior called Guthrum, one of the leaders of the great heathen army, surprised him. He launched a surprise attack on Alfred at Alfred's base in what we know as Chippenham. And Alfred was forced to flee. He was lucky to get away, lucky to get away with his life. He fled from his base with his followers and they disappeared, having superior local knowledge, they disappeared into the marshes of around Athelney in Somerset. And it was a forbidding bit of morass, the kind of place you could go into and hide, uh, which is what they did. They regrouped. Alfred pulled himself together. He's lost his base. Uh, Guthrum is now in Chippenham, has Chippenham as a, as a fortified base. But Alfred holds his head, keeps his head together and... They sally forth from the marshes once they're ready uh, with fighting men and they, they, they operate a kind of guerrilla warfare campaign against Guthrum and the rest of them. There's more than one group of Viking warriors operating in the area. It's around this time that Alfred has that experience, which is probably the only experience that a lot of people will ever, ever know about Alfred because they get it at school. It's where he burns the cakes. As to whether it happened or not, seems highly unlikely, but in any event, the story's worth retelling. He's sheltering with a poor family, peasant types, and he's sitting by the fire and the wife, the, the woman of the house, has put bread cakes in the oven, on the oven to, to, to warm, to cook, to cook on the fire, and he's told to watch them, but he's so preoccupied with other things. I mean, he is the king uh, and he's got a lot on his mind and uh, he lets the cakes burn. And the wife comes back in, and she doesn't know who he is. She, she knows he's a man, but she, she doesn't. She doesn't have any idea about his identity. And she kind of hits him around the head and makes him bake more cakes for her. And this is a, a story, obviously, apart from anything else, it's told to get the idea that he was a humble man, and that he was not above listening to and acknowledging his mistakes when he made them. There's something of the parable about it. You know, the, these, the cakes might be his kingdom, that for 
on account of inattention on his part was lost and that he had to stoop to start again you know that that might be the message it's a bit like um, Robert the Bruce and the spider you know where he's hiding out and he gets he gets reminded about the necessity to be to be patient and to start from nothing even when you lose Robert Bruce watches the spider trying to spin the web and it keeps on not working and it by by just sheer determination it, it manages to build what it needs so it's probably got that sort of message about it in any event that happens to Alfred while he's hiding out and you know doing his best from the marshes in Somerset So eventually, by the middle part of that same year, he's ready to do something big. And he brings Guthrum to battle at a place called Ethendun, which has been understood by historians and archaeologists to be Eddington. Alfred's Wessex men operate in a shield wall, so they line up behind their shields with spears over the top and they push. It's a technique that was used again and again and again at that time and it's recorded uh, as great slaughter of the pagans. It's one of those turning point victories that makes all the difference. The Vikings were not defeated but their ambitions were thwarted. It was a, it was a turning point in the whole campaign. Uh, you know, it's well worth remembering that the, the heathen army are at the end of their supply lines. You know, they're a long way from home. They've come across the sea they're on enemy territory where nobody wants them. So they're, they're under pressure as well. And this battle at Eddington is significant. Whereabouts is Eddington in modern Britain? Uh, Eddington is in Wiltshire. So that's where that, where that battle happened. Alfred, he was very much a thinker. And as part of overwhelming the Vikings, it wasn't going to be just done by a single battle. Alfred raised the boroughs. You know, everywhere like Edinburgh, any place name that ends in borough, has, has some DNA in it from Alfred's time. It was a network of fortified towns that he established, and they were all aware of one another, and they all had armed men within them, and they were, they were sort of close enough. They were like nodes in a network, like knots in a net, and where there was trouble, the, the fighting men there could, could hold off an attack, and they could also expect help from other nearby forces. So he was networking the fighting men of, of Wessex at that point, and that was critical to his success. After the Battle of Eddington in Wiltshire, Guthrum retreated. He went back to Chippenham, to the fortified base at Chippenham, and Alfred followed him and laid siege to Chippenham for three weeks, at the end of which Guthrum's Scandinavians, these Vikings, had had enough and they agreed to come to terms. Fundamentally, what made all the difference was, uh, as well as accepting a peace treaty, uh, he agreed to become Christian. The treaty that resulted, you know, the, the paperwork, if you like, was the Treaty of Wedmore. That was the name of uh, Alfred's estate, Alfred's holding in that place and the, the moment in terms of the story of the world that we're interested in has Guthrum uh, arrive uh, with his retinue. He's been summoned or there's an agreed meeting point and it's at Aller. He comes to the church there, it's a, a church that was raised by the Saxons and in the church there he kneels and is baptised at the font. He goes into the water as Guthrum but he comes out in that way of the rebirth of baptism 
as Athelstan. He takes on a new name and he accepts that he is now Alfred's adopted son. Guthrum having gone through that, having emerged as Athelstan, there's 12 days of feasting and other celebrations on Alfred's estate at Wedmore. And after the 12 days are up, the Vikings, Guthrum and his Vikings, leave Wessex forever. You know, as promised, that's the deal. By the terms of the Treaty of Wedmore, he leaves Wessex and the whole of the south and west to Alfred. He, Guthrum, takes a big swathe of the north and east of England. And that territory becomes subject for generations to come as the Dane law, which is to say, rather than being under Anglo-Saxon law, it was under Scandinavian, Dane law. They were Danish Vikings. It was really during the reign of Alfred's, or the subsequent reigns of Alfred's sons and grandsons, that the Vikings were finally and properly brought to heel. You know, finally made subject to English rule. But even by the time of, of Alfred's death, they were under control in all but name. The Viking threat had been mastered by Alfred while he was still alive. And why this moment matters is by so doing, by securing that territory, by holding off the invading threat, by creating the boroughs, by all of that tactical thinking to secure the place, Alfred laid the foundations for England. And by laying the foundations for England, he effectively laid the foundations for Britain. And it came in many ways out of a commitment to Christianity and learning, because that Christianity and learning raised the character of the people. It gave them a morality and an ethical framework that effectively gave them a superiority over the Vikings and, and enabled them to rise above and dominate the threat. The kingdom that, that he founded, which was based, it was broken down into shires, and the shires were broken down into hundreds, and the hundreds were broken down into hides. A hundred, there's a lot of debate over what a hundred actually is. It, it was, it, you, you quite often read about it being a, a territory that was able to raise a hundred fighting men. And, and the hundreds were made of hides. And, a, and a, an individual hide was probably something like enough of a farmstead, enough to keep a family. An extended family would be the, would be the occupants of a hide. And enough hides would produce a hundred, which was a territory, a much bigger territory that could raise, when required, a hundred fighting men, and then there'd be a certain number of hundreds in a shire. So, and, and within, within all of that, there are the boroughs, which are the fortified towns. And that way of understanding the country that was laid down by Alfred would last for a thousand years. And such was the, such was the uh, efficacy of that system of hundreds, of hides, that it was it was exported, it was it was used again and again and again. And in fact, no less a personage than Thomas Jefferson of the American Declaration of Independence and President of the United States, he suggested governing the state of Virginia along those lines by dividing the state of Virginia into hundreds. And in so doing, he was a knowledgeable man, of course, he was an educated man, and he uh, he he was drawing from uh, Anglo-Saxon England. Because he, as a founding father, he was one of those that believed that the fledgling nation of the United States of America had that common uh, Anglo-Saxon heritage. 
you know, this great commonality between his part of the world and, the, and that font from which it had come. Uh, and he understood it and believed that if, if it had worked well in, in Wessex, if it had worked well in Anglo-Saxon England, then there was no reason why the same system wouldn't work for him in Virginia. So Alfred laid the foundations for, for England. Alfred laid the foundations for Britain. He never called himself, neither did he understand himself as Alfred the Great, but such was the contribution that he made that people who came after him and wanted to big up their own status by being connected to him were more than happy to call him Alfred the Great. Formidable Viking forces make their presence felt right across Europe, relentlessly raiding and plundering. Huge amounts of gold and silver are handed over by besieged, cowering cities. Exhausted financially and physically, the Kingdom of West Francia does a deal. A vast swathe of prosperous, fertile land in exchange for conversion to Christianity and protection. Next time, in my love letter to the world... To help support this podcast and to get access to new and exclusive history and comment vodcasts every week, sign up to my Neil Oliver Patreon site. It'd be great to see you there. Check out the Instagram account called Neil Oliver Love Letter, my YouTube channel simply called The Neil Oliver Channel. And to help build this podcast, please tell your friends about it, get them listening and write a review to convince the online crowd to join us. For further reading about these moments in time, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the World in 100 Moments, and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the World is produced by Paul Ratcliffe and Neil Oliver for Catnip Inc. Music is composed by Milo McKinnon. Social media and YouTube producer is Oscar CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucian, Archie and Teddy. Finance is by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production is by Althorpe Studios and the graphics are by Paul Plowman. Thanks for listening. This has been a Catnip Inc. Podcasts production. Spring? Is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Super Light Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Try the Super Light Tree Runner with a cushy foam midsole and breathable eucalyptus fiber upper. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. So what can you do in a Super Light shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com. Code SUPER24.